We are on location underneath the chain bridge. I have lived in this city my whole life. I've driven across this bridge my whole life, but I've never been under here. But we wanted to get under here. Well, actually, Ben, who's on the other side of the camera, definitely wanted to come to this location because of this foundation. Look how firm this foundation. We're surrounded by rocks, solid rocks. And we talking about, we've been talking about Jesus being our solid rock. So this is perfect, perfect place. And you know what? Ben decided, let's park far away. And then he had me carry these big, huge, heavy, sound deadening panels because he had to carry the one pound camera. And we went through brush and rocks and mud just to get to this point. Man, I was sweating all over the place. But Ben thought, the more I suffer, the more you would know how much Jesus loves you because we're doing all this, we're doing all this for you. Okay, now, John chapter 10, pressure point. We need to identify, Liz spoke to us about this, what is the epicenter? Because if we identify where the pressure point is, we can begin to relieve pressure. It might hurt at the beginning, at the epicenter of pain, but we'll begin to relieve pressure. That's what Jesus does in John chapter 10. He identifies for us what is the pressure point of all humanity? What is the epicenter to all the problems of humanity? So here we go, John 10, starting in verse 34. Jesus replied, it is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are gods, and you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called gods, I'll explain that in a second, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? After all, the father set me apart and sent me into the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my father's work. But if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works that I have done, even if you don't believe in me. Then you'll know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus identifies the pressure point of all pressure points, the epicenter of all epicenters of humanity, is that we have a very strong reluctance in us to center our lives on God to make God our firm and solid foundation. Genesis, very beginning of the book, there's a tree. The tree represents God. It's in the center of the garden. And when we make God the center of our lives, when everything we do revolves around God and he's the center, I'm not the center, you're not the center, no one else is the center, no other philosophy or ideology is the center, God is the center, then the garden becomes paradise because everything functions as it's supposed to. Now, we're really reluctant to do that because we kind of have a self-centered nature, or we think, if I make God the center of my life, I'm gonna miss out on a lot of fun or a lot of freedom, but that is just never the case. Jesus makes this statement at the end of John 10 during Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a time, once a year, that we remember the rededication of the temple. What is dedication? Set apart. Set apart for what? That God is the center, that he is first thing in my life that I'm putting in first. So everything that Jesus is pointing to is that. Now, why does he call them gods? Well, let's read Psalm 82, because it's gonna really help us. Now, when Jesus says you're gods, they hear that and they immediately know everything that he's talking about. It'd be the same way if I said, and I've done this before, like, ask not. When I say that, you immediately know the speech I'm referring to. Or I have a dream, you know the speech I'm referring to. Or four score, you know the speech I'm referring to. So when Jesus says, gods, when he brings it up, they immediately know, oh, Psalm 82. We know what that's all about. Well, what's it about? It is about a critique of humanity 
that we constantly struggle with this, making God the center. So look what happens when we don't make God the center. Psalm 82 says this. I'm going to read the whole psalm. God presides in the great assembly and he renders judgment among the gods. Let me stop right there because the heading on my Bible for Psalm 82 talks about God being a God of judgment. A lot of times people have a problem with that. I don't believe in a God of judgment. But if you don't believe in a God of judgment, then you don't believe in justice because you can't have justice without a judge and therefore you need a God of judgment. So I know we like to say that, but we don't really practically want to believe in that because just no justice, no peace, right? You can't have justice without a judge. It's pretty depressing to think about that. So let's move on. Verse number two, because this, this is where we really get into it. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? So he begins to tell them, this is what happens when God's not at the center. All stuff gets all kinds of messed up. Verse three, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. See, they weren't doing that because God wasn't at the center. Verse four, Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth for all the nations are your inheritance. What's that all about? We aren't perfect. None of us are perfect. We make wrong judgments. We tend to protect ourselves or protect the people who are like us or the people who think like us, and then we commit acts of injustice against other people. That is human history, everybody. That's just human history. But when we make God the center, things work right. Justice for all people. We take care of the poor and the needy and the oppressed. We don't end up oppressing other people. So what is Jesus saying in John 10? It is this history-long problem that humanity has with making God the center. And when we don't do that, there's all kinds of bad things that go on in our lives and in the world. If I want to mess my life up and I want to mess my world up, make my, and I just make myself the center. But if I want to correct things, then God should be the very center. Now, I want to read to you a high school graduation speech by David McCullough, Jr., he gave, now, this is David McCullough Jr. We all have heard about David McCullough, the famous author. His son is a high school teacher, and he gave this at his high school graduation. This is what he says. I won't say the, read the whole speech. I'll just give you an excerpt. Your ceremonial costume, shapeless uniform, one size fits all, whether male and female, tall or short, scholar or slacker, spray tan prom queen or intergalactic Xbox assassin. Each of you is dressed, you'll notice, exactly the same. And your diploma, but for your name, exactly the same. And this is as it should be, because none of you is special. You are not special. You are not exceptional. Contrary to what your U9 soccer trophy suggests, your glowing seventh grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain corpulent purple dinosaur, that nice Mr. Rogers and your batty Aunt Sylvia, no matter how often your maternal cape crusader has swooped in to save you, you're nothing special. Yes, you've been pampered, doted upon, helmeted, bubble wrapped. Yes, capable adults with other things to do have held you, kissed you, fed you, wiped your mouth, wiped your bodden, trained you, taught you, tutored you, coached you, listened to you, counseled you, encouraged you, consoled you, and encouraged you again. 
You've been nudged, cajoled, wheeled, and implored. You've been feted and fawned over and called sweetie pie. But do not get the idea that you're anything special because you're not. So think about it, this. Even if you're one in a million on a planet with 6.8 billion, that means that nearly 7,000 people just like you. Imagine standing somewhere over there on Washington Street on Marathon Monday and watching 6,800 yous go running by. And consider for a moment the bigger picture. Your planet, I'll remind you, is not the center of its solar system. Your solar system is not the center of its galaxy. Your galaxy is not the center of the universe. In fact, astrophysicists assure us the universe has no center. Therefore, you cannot be it. Climb the mountain not to plant your flag, but to embrace the challenge. Enjoy the air and behold the view. Climb it so you can see the world, not so the world can see you. Go to Paris to be in Paris, not to cross it off your list and congratulate yourself for being worldly. Exercise free will and creative, independent thought, not for the satisfactions that they will bring you, but for the good they will do for others. The rest of the 6.8 billion and those who will follow you. And then you too will discover the great curious truth of the human experience is that selflessness is the best thing you can do for yourself. The sweetest joys of life then come only with the recognition that you're not special because everyone is. Congratulations, good luck, make for yourselves please, for your sake and ours extraordinary lives. David McCullough Jr. So we are reluctant. We are reluctant to make God the very center, but when we do, we end up living the life that God has called us to. We all, God put in us, we have a desire to live that life. In scripture, it's called rest. It's called shalom or greatness. It's true greatness. True greatness is only found when we are not the center. Now, before I get into the answer that Jesus gives us to this issue of our reluctance, and there are a number of them, I want to bring up right now our brand new series. It's called, I Want to Believe But... I want to believe, but God doesn't answer my prayers. I want to believe, but the world is filled with suffering. I want to believe, but the Bible's filled with violence. There's all these buts. There's these reasons why. But what God is calling us to do is to make him the very center. So we want to begin to answer those. Jesus gives us a very important answer here, which I'm getting ready to get into. But right now, I want to say this. This, in my opinion, I know preachers like to exaggerate everything, so this might not be true, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think this is the most important series that we have ever done in the history of this church because it's focused on the things that's really relevant to you and I, and it deals with the epicenter of our problem, this pressure point, that if we deal with this, everything else will begin to work right, and that is making God the center. And why am I reluctant to do that? I'm reluctant to do that because... There is violence in the Bible, and God doesn't answer my prayers, and there's so much suffering. That's my reluctance. I'd like to hear from you. You can put it in the chat right now. What is it that holds you back? Or you can just email me directly, john.slytrygrace.org. I can't promise you I'm going to be able to get back to the many emails that will come in, but I will read them all, and it will inform this brand new series, okay? That is what I want to ask you to do. Now, Jesus says in John 10, here's the reason, and we... 
Here's the reason why we should make him the center. Here's why we should not be reluctant about making Jesus Christ the very center, the foundation, the cornerstone of our very lives. We have all kinds of discussions about was Jesus born of a virgin? Did he really claim to be God? Did he really do all these miracles? All this stuff that kind of gets us wrapped around the axle, right? Jesus clears all that away and he says, okay, okay, guys, don't believe in me. Don't believe I'm the son of God. Take a look at what I do. Believe in the works that I do. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Can you think of somebody better to follow than Jesus Christ? Can you think of somebody who's doing these works who has this incredible character? Can you think of somebody more inspiring or that you should base your life on than Jesus Christ? What is it there to love about Jesus? Can I do just a brief review? I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna go long, long, okay? But just really briefly, John chapter two. John chapter two is about turning water into wine. It's about avoiding social shame. That's what the turning the water into wine was. It's about avoiding social shame. Jesus covers our shame. Humanity tends to, if it's to our benefit, expose shame in other people. Jesus says he likes to cover the shame. John chapter three, he wants to protect us because he loves us. Do you wanna follow somebody who goes around and shames you, whether you've brought, I mean, haven't we all done something to inflict shame on ourselves? Or maybe we had the very unfortunate experience of somebody else kind of doing things to us that has inflicted shame on us. Jesus covers that. Yeah. Did you read the Scarlet Letter? Right. I read the Scarlet Letter, I had to read it in high school. It's about a woman who had to go around with a big A marked on her because she was found to be an adulteress. Now the guy wasn't exposed, but she was exposed. And it reminds us of John chapter eight. What are we told in John chapter eight? Here's this woman caught in the act of adultery. There's no guy there. It's kind of it's kind of weird. We have a lot of questions when we read John chapter eight, but but we just get the meat. We just get this, you know, not all our questions are answered. Like, what is Jesus right in the ground? But what we do know is this, is they were ready to kill her. They were shaming her terribly. It says she was caught in the very act. You can imagine in your mind what that looks like. And he protects her. First and foremost, he protects her. And then number two, he admonishes her. Just don't live this way. Don't live this life of sin. This isn't the best life for you. Don't you want to follow somebody that loves you like that and who won't sit back and allow you to crush your own life? Don't you want to follow somebody who loves you so much they wouldn't shame you? How about John chapter 4? It's the longest recorded conversation we have of Jesus with anybody in the entirety of Scripture. And it is with a Samaritan woman. She's the wrong race. She's the wrong gender. She has the wrong morals. She's looked down upon in her city. He loves her. He accepts her. He speaks to her. He talks to her about living water. These wonderful things he talks to her about. And she goes from kind of being the goat of her city, right, to being looked down upon in her city, to being great in her city. She's happy at the end, and everybody's following her out to meet Jesus. What do you think about that? How about John 6? Jesus feeds a bunch of hungry people. And lastly, can I just mention John chapter 9? because it's really a great chapter. We covered it a number of weeks ago. John 9 deals with karma. You got a man that's been born blind. That's a miserable life to live 2,000 years ago. You can't imagine how terrible that is to live. And the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned? In other words, karma. Who's, it's the same story in Job. Who sinned? Job is suffering terribly. Okay, so he must've done something wrong. So they look at this man born blind, living this miserable existence, and they say, who sinned, him or his parents? That's karma. You know what karma is. We talk about karma. I hear people say that all the time. Oh, karma, karma. Somebody does something wrong and then all of a sudden something really bad happens to them and you say, oh, that's, that's karma. You know what they call it? Well, karma is a b All right, that's what we say. That's what we say about it. 
Karma is very cruel though, isn't it? Can you imagine going up to somebody who has a sick child, a suffering child, and just say, well, karma. Can you imagine going up to somebody who suffered terrible injustice and say, karma? Can you imagine somebody who's like coming out of the hall? If you could go back into time, like back into the 1940s, and you could talk to somebody who's coming out of a concentration camp, or if you got back into the mid-1800s and somebody's coming out of slavery and just karma, karma is unbiblical. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus is not cruel. Karma is cruel. And he fights against it because we have human beings, when we center our lives on ourselves and not on God, we tend to think in terms of karma. We talk about karma a lot, and God says no. All right, so here's those reasons why we should follow, why, why we shouldn't be reluctant, because who he is. I can't think of all my study and reading about people, religion, and philosophy, a better person. Let me say this. We're talking a lot, and I know this is going to get a little tense, right? But just listen to me for just a second. We're talking about tearing a lot of statues down. And, and as we tear these statues down or talking about tearing statues down, what are we saying? We're looking at the person's life and saying, yeah, well, they were imperfect here. We tear it down. And then we have to make this judgment call. Like, where is it? Like, how far do we go? You can't find anybody perfect. So if we really want to be true to that, we'd have to tear every statue down. You can't have a statue of George Washington. I've read books about George Washington. He's not perfect. Alexander Hamilton, the musical, I mean, the celebrated hero, he is far from perfect. You can't find one perfect person except for Jesus Christ who claimed to be perfect. And look at his life. Look at what he did. Wouldn't you want to center your life on him? Doesn't that kind of get rid of all the reluctance? Yes. I want to follow somebody who loves like that, who brings justice to all people, who defends me, who covers my shame, who doesn't talk about karma, something so cruel. That is what Jesus is saying here, why we should center our lives on him. So that's my one fill in the blank today. Center your life on Christ because wasn't there to love about Jesus Christ as you consider all that he's done. Now, let me close out with this, Philippians chapter 4. Because when we talk about centering our lives on Christ and we're getting ready for this series that's going to be talking about unanswered prayer and suffering and all kinds of things that are problematic in my life, how do we deal with it? Well, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, speaking to a group of people who are really suffering, he says, here's how you're going to get yourself out of it. Look what he says. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me and everything you have heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. How do you get to peace in the midst of a suffering situation? He keeps saying you got to think about it a lot. Look, our suffering, our problems, our pain, our all the things that are brought on because we're not centered on God. He's not the center of our lives. He's not the foundation of our lives. All those, they're not going to magically go away. They're not. Suffering is here and so is God. You're going to have to think deeply. The Bible calls us to think deeply. That's how Paul says you deal with this thing. Whatever problem that you're suffering in life now or in the future, you're going to have to think deeply in order to deal with it. Jesus Christ in scriptures is called the Logos. We get the word logic from it. It is logical. The word repentance, which is often in the Bible, repent and believe. What? That's a mind word, to love God with our mind, to be transformed with our mind. These are all mental words. So as we head into this new series, I want to encourage you to invite a friend. Invite somebody who grew up believing and now they've grown to disbelieving. Invite somebody who says the Bible is not just a, it's just a bunch of myths. 
I don't believe it. Invite atheists, invite Christians, because we're going to deal with things that frustrate all of us, but we're going to have to think deeply. We're going to think really, really deeply. I'll put a list of resources at the bottom of your notes tab if you'd like to get into any of those, and I'll probably add some along the way. For now, let's pray, and let's ask God to help us to not be reluctant to make Him the center of our lives. Almighty God, I ask that you would help every single one of us. Help us to not be reluctant to center our lives on you. Give us the strength and the wisdom and the understanding to put you at the very center of our lives in Christ's name. Amen.